Thank you for listening to Franklin City Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information on Franklin City Church, please check us out at www.franklincitychurch.com. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one that was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. Before we jump in, let's, let's pray. God, we do thank you for a time of the year where we can remember and reflect and celebrate just how awesome and amazing it was that the God of the universe entered in and dwelt among us to save us. And so, God, we want this month, we want our times together to be all about celebrating you. And so we ask that you would speak to us through your word as we, as we attempt to preach through it, to hear it and receive it in a way that it is, it is worshipful, God. It is glorifying to you. So give us, Lord, ears to hear and hearts to respond to your word. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, good morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you have them, uh, to Romans 5. We'll be in Romans 5 this morning, and uh, the Christmas season is upon us. I, I assume you've noticed some of the decorations. Um, if you like them, uh, you're, you're welcome. If you don't like them, they were actually not put up by us. Uh, the church that owns the building, current church, uh, must have done this, and so we are grateful for them to allow us to use their, their building and to enjoy some of their lights and uh, decorations. So, 
Uh, this morning, we are going to mainly be camped, camped out in Romans 5. We are going to jump around a little bit in the Word uh, this morning. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen. But if you're in Romans 5, that'll be a good spot to be camped out in. And we have wrapped up our study of 1 Peter, and we are now entering a special season called Advent. Advent is the weeks and the season leading up to Christmas. It historically starts the fourth Sunday leading up to Christmas, and then it ends on Christmas Eve. And depending on your church background, I know some of you might be familiar with the term Advent. Some of you, maybe that's a foreign term or concept to you. Uh, But the word Advent means arrival. The word Advent means arrival. So during Advent, we remember, and in many ways, we are reenacting the first arrival of Jesus, when Jesus put on flesh and was born in a manger. But we also take this season to anticipate and long for Jesus' second advent when he returns to restore and make all things new. And so advent is all about the arrival of Jesus, both his first and his second coming. And in our culture, though, if you ask most people what their Decembers were all about, uh, I suspect you would find that it is not primarily about Jesus' arrival or Jesus' advent. And I know I can honestly say, if you would want me to look back into the past of some of my past Decembers and look at how I spent my time and my energy and my money and all my hopes, you know, it mainly was not about Jesus' arrival. And so this Christmas, we want to make this Christmas season a true and better Christmas season, not only in my own family, but also here at church. And so we are, we are trying to do this in a, in a few different ways. But some Christians have become cynical of the season altogether because of all the, the hype and the nonsense and things that go along with the season. Some, some Christians have just become cynical and skeptical of the season altogether. And then you have some people on the other opposite end of the spectrum, and we'll just call them the Christmas crazies, okay? The Christmas crazies. They are the ones that ended trick-or-treating early so they could start untangling their Christmas lights, right? You probably know some of these people. They're the ones that are out making reindeer footprints in the snow, and uh, you probably got their Christmas card in, in like, August, and they've been jamming to Christmas music since Labor Day, right? Um, who, who here has been, has been jamming to Christmas music for more than just this month? Can, do we have any honest? Okay, yeah, 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 all right, all right. Okay, so we won't put you in the Christmas crazy category, but we just know there are some people that are, we'll call Christmas crazies. But then what happens to Christmas crazies many of the times, and I myself would identify myself as a Christmas crazy in past years, okay? What happens to Christmas crazies on December 26th? Or maybe even late in the day on December 25th? If your whole December has been about fun fairy tales, gifts you've really wanted, and if you've hyped up Christmas for all the wrong reasons, then what happens on December 26th? December 26th, you get what specialists call the post-Christmas blues. The post-Christmas blues. That's not an official diagnosis, but it should be one. The post-Christmas blues. You feel empty and let down. Because what you have been anticipating has no real value or worth. It is empty. And that that adrenaline rush or that high that you get from getting a new gift or getting something new, it does kind of pick you up for a while, but that high wears off in about 24 hours, and you come crashing down, and you are feeling left empty and depressed because all the things that you have been looking forward to and longing for They have no real value or worth. 
All those gifts and things you've been longing for will never fulfill you. And spoiler alert, they never will. Like, not this year, not next year. We always think maybe the next year, but they will never fulfill you. And praise God that they don't so that we can echo what St. Augustine said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Because there is one who does fulfill those hopes and desires. And there is one that does live up to the anticipation and the hype. We've just been anticipating the wrong advent or the wrong arrivals. We've been anticipating the advent or arrival of gifts. We've been anticipating the advent or arrival of family. We've been anticipating the advent or arrival of holiday meals or a break from work or warm feelings or fun movies or fun holiday traditions. And we have been taken captive by the advent or the arrival of all the wrong things instead of being captivated by Christ. And Colossians 2.8 says this. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. I think that could sum up Christmas in our culture, right? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I do not want to be taken captive by the Christmas season. I want us to be captivated by Christ. And so let us join together and not be one that just ignores this whole season altogether, as well as let's not let ourselves to be taken captive by all the nonsense and all of the lesser things that we have been anticipating, but let us be captivated by Christ. And this is what we mean when we say that we want December here. We want the Christmas season to be a true and better Christmas season. And so as a church, we are trying to help us all do this together, to have a true and better Christmas season. Now, this is our first year as a church during Advent, and so this is our first attempt at it, and I I assume that every year we'll probably get a little better at doing this. But one way that we're trying to do this is we have, have created an Advent page on our website. So if you go to our website and click on the Advent page, there at least is going to be a a devotional you could download, some books that you could go to to, that we could recommend for you to purchase to lead your family in some devotions, as well as we have some articles just about different activities and things that you can do throughout the holidays to make sure that you are being captivated by Christ. And then the way that we will anticipate Jesus' arrival on Sunday mornings in our sermons is by looking back at a few Old Testament characters and learning how they were foreshadowing and pointing to Jesus' arrival. And Jesus affirmed this fact that all scripture points to and was anticipating his advent. After his resurrection, when he came upon a couple of his disciples, Luke 24, 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And a pastor named uh, Martin DeHaan once said this. He said, If we search long enough, we shall find upon every page of Scripture, standing somewhere in the shadow, the outline of the central person of the book, the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, A godly minister said to me early in my ministry, Son, you have never found the true interpretation of any passage of the Scriptures until you have found in it somewhere a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
If you search long enough, you will find him standing somewhere in the background, sometimes clear and unmistakable, sometimes faintly and dimly, but he is there. And this morning, we're going to look back at how Adam, we're going to look at Adam, and we're going to look at how Adam points to Jesus's arrival or advent and how Jesus is the true and better Adam. Verse 14 of our passage in Romans says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And so Adam was a type of Christ. Here we need to understand a little bit about this idea of typology, okay? A definition of typology from David Murray says this, a type of Christ is a real person, place, object, event, or office that God has ordained to act as a predictive pattern or resemblance of Jesus's person and work. So that video, which the words to that video were written by Tim Keller, all of those are biblical characters and historical events that really did take place and really did happen. We believe Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden was a historical event that really took place, but all throughout these historical events and all throughout these stories and characters throughout the Old Testament, we see that God is, is divinely orchestrating an underlying predictive pattern and shadows and resemblances of Jesus. And so when you start reading the Old Testament in this way, it comes alive to you in ways that it has never been alive to you before. The glory of Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes it is obvious and sometimes it is subtle. But church, if you want to enjoy, understand, celebrate, and know Jesus more, read the Old Testament and take the advice from that quote from Pastor Dahan we just read. If you search long enough, you will find him standing somewhere. And so this morning, we're going to look at Adam and we're going to chew on and enjoy that what was lost in the garden has been won back by Jesus. What was lost in the garden was won back by Jesus. Let me read to you a few passages from Genesis so that we have an understanding uh, to this and a refresher on this first image bearer that God created named Adam. So just hear these verses from Genesis. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Adam was created in the image of God and given dominion over the rest of the creation to rule over it with God and to take care of it. Then in Genesis 2, 16, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. One command that God gives. God started with baby steps with humanity, right? He didn't start with the Ten Commandments. He just started with one command. Now, he didn't give a full explanation as to why he gave that command, right? He didn't fully explain why they weren't to eat of that tree, but he did explain the consequence if they were to break that command that it would lead to death. But you see, what creator God desired from the beginning is the same desire that he has for us today is that creation would trust its creator. He desires and delights when his people trust him. 
And then we see here a glimpse of Christ in Genesis 2.18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then in verse 21, so the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Did you guys catch that? Did you see a a shadow of Christ? In the same way that God caused Adam to be in a deep sleep and pierced his side to take a rib to form for him a bride, So too Jesus was in the deep sleep of death and his side was pierced to form his bride, the church. Shadows of Jesus are on every page. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The advent or the arrival of sin came into the world through one man. Well, what is sin, first of all? Sin is rebellion against God. Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, were given one rule, one law. They were given paradise to rule over To cultivate, they had access to God's presence to walk with him, but he said, do not eat of this tree. And at the root of their rebellion was a distrust of God. Like God must be holding out on us, or God must not have known what he was talking about when he said, do not eat of that tree. Creation in Genesis 3 did not trust its creator, and therefore they rebelled. They took the fruit and they ate, and, and they were told, sorry, they took the, the, the fruit that they were, sorry, I'm, I'm getting my words mixed up. They took the fruit from the tree and ate that they were told not to eat from, right? This one act of disobedience, this one act of sin, sin and death then entered into the world. And Adam and Eve, as a result, were separated from God. The reason they were separated from God's presence was not because God is mean or not because God is cruel, but because God is holy. And absolute goodness, purity, and light would destroy any darkness, speck, or blemish in its presence. And therefore, it was God's grace that he removed them from his presence because he had a plan to one day dwell again with humanity. God all along knew that there needed to be a true and better Adam who would perfectly obey in the garden so that once again, creator could dwell with creation. And church, you've got to understand first just how big of a loss this was that they lost the presence of God. 
This is a big deal to lose the presence of God. I mean, Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God. They talked with God. They enjoyed God. They ruled over the rest of creation with him. They lived in the presence of the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the mighty creator. They walked with the light of the world. They got to sit with the bread of life. They got to laugh with the Holy One. You have to grasp that what was lost in the garden was no little thing. This was a huge loss. But this wasn't the end of the story. And I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it in the Jesus Storybook Bible. She says, in another story, it would all be over. That would have been the end. No, but church, not this story. Although Adam's sin caused him to lose God's presence, there is a true and better Adam named Jesus, who is also called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And God did not leave humanity on its own, abandoned to be separated from his presence forever, but instead he entered in and had a plan so that he could dwell with us once again. And there was a British writer named Dorothy Sayers, and she wrote during the time of C.S. Lewis during that era. She was mainly known for writing detective fiction, detective fiction. And in most of her books, the main detective she wrote about was a fictional character named Lord Peter Whimsey. It's a good name, Lord Peter Whimsey. And people have said that she wrote so much about Peter Whimsey that she fell in love with him. And so later on in her novels and some of the later writings that she had, she introduced a new character named Harriet Vane. Now, Harriet Vane was a fictional character, but what people noticed was that she oddly looked exactly like the author, Dorothy Sayers. People noticed that she was exactly like her. They went to the same school, they, they had the same family, and they both wrote detective fiction novels. So do you see what happened? Dorothy Sayer falls in love with this character in her story, story, Peter Whimsey, and then she writes herself into the story, and they end up getting married. So you understand, she created someone, she loved him so much that she wrote herself into the story. Now this was God's plan all along that God, the creator and the author of life, loves his creation so much that he enters into his story to save, redeem, restore, and win back what Adam lost in the garden. Look with, look with me now at Romans 5, at Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift of following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Let's stop there for a sec. Verse 14, Adam is a type of Christ. Meaning that his actions, just like Jesus's, would have a far-reaching influence or effect. So much so that all humanity is either in Adam or in Christ. And I don't care if you consider yourself to be religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter if you identify yourself as an agnostic or an atheist. It doesn't matter what philosophical thought you are following in line with right now. The Bible makes it real simple and clear that we are all either in Adam or we are in Christ. And we are all born in Adam. We are all born in Adam. And just like all children inherit something from their father... All humanity has inherited Adam's sin. And because of this, we now all have a propensity or a bent to not trust God. We all have a propensity and a bent to rebel and to sin. We were born in Adam with a sin nature. That's why the psalmist can say in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, And in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, this is why the virgin birth is so important. I know a lot of times we don't think or talk about the virgin birth, but we're always reminded of it every December. But this is why it's important, because I think we often forget why it is important. So, church, in order to have a true and better Christmas season, let me remind you why the virgin birth is important. In order for us to have a sinless Savior... We needed a savior that would not inherit the sin of our father, Adam. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, then he inherited the sin of Adam. And therefore, he was not a sinless savior. And therefore, his sacrifice was not sufficient. And therefore, you are still in your sins. But the miraculous birth... Jesus being born of a virgin is crucial and should be cherished, celebrated, and marveled at because Jesus was the first since Adam to be born without sin and to be born without a sin nature. So the virgin birth is a pretty amazing and awesome thing that I think we should all be pretty excited about. Uh, I think the only person that kind of got the short end of the stick on this one was probably Joseph, okay? Uh, He kind of took one for the team, uh, so to speak. Uh, But being born in Adam means that we are born in sin. We are born with a sin nature. We are born as a sinner. And you primarily are a sinner not because you sin, but because you are a sinner, Does that make sense? You guys follow. Let me try to explain that a little bit. Sin is not just an action. It is actually a condition. Sin is not just a symptom. It is a disease, okay? Sin is not just an action. It is a condition. Yes, we all do sin. We all cannot claim that, you know, everyone can claim that we have done sinful actions, No one could say that they've lived a a sinless life, that we haven't made sinful decisions or choices, but we are ultimately sinners because we are sinners, meaning we are born in Adam. We've inherited this fatal condition from our father, Adam. 
Verse 13 of our passage. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Before the law was given to God's people through Moses, there most definitely was sin. But the passage says, but it was not counted, meaning it was not quantifiable because they did not, have, they did not yet have specific commands that they knew they were bre- breaking besides the one that creator God has had for us all along, and that was a desire for creation to trust its creator. And we'll talk next week about Abraham, who lived before the law was given, who believed God and trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So while specific sins weren't being quantified or counted from Adam to Moses, sin indeed was still present because it is a condition that all humanity that lived between Adam and Moses were inheriting from their father, Adam. So sin most definitely existed and death reigned because the wages of sin is death. So that's why our passage can say that death reigned from Adam to Moses. And this is why it's important for us to remember that sin is primarily a condition, not just actions. I know that phrase, it maybe sounds good, but why does it actually matter to us to understand that sin are not just actions, but it is a condition? Because when people believe that the only reason they are a sinner is because they sin, then they only go about trying to change their behavior or trying to change their sinful choices. But what Jesus said was that we needed to be born again. They needed to be born not in Adam. When Adam sinned, his disobedience spread to all mankind, and it radically corrupted the nature of all humanity, and all humanity since has been born in Adam, and we have been born in sin. Humanity does not just need to just stop sinning. No, we need to be given new hearts, and we need to be born again. When you are in Adam, you are a slave to your desires, and you are a slave to the inherited condition called sin. Now, you might say, Pastor Grant, I'm not a slave. I make choices every day. I choose to do this. I choose to do that. I obviously have freedom of choice. Well, yeah, I get that everyone makes choices. I know you make choices every day, but you see, you choose what you desire most. And what you desire most comes out of the inclination of your nature. And we are born with a sinful nature. We are born in Adam. So just trying to make non-sinful choices is really a pointless pursuit. What we need is a new nature so that we can have new desires, so that we can choose not to sin. You need to be in Christ. But just as the disobedience of Adam spread to humanity, so too the obedience of Christ has spread to all his people. Look back in Romans at verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, 
But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. J. Gresham McKinn, a theologian and pastor who, the founder, who's the founder of Westminster uh, Seminary, said this, the beauty of Jesus' achievement was not simply to remove the penalty for our disobedience, wonderful though that it is. It was to obey for us as our representative head throughout his life and supremely in his death. Jesus, yes, died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died the death we deserve to die. He died in our place. He took the penalty. But he also gives us his righteousness or his rightness with God. Jesus' perfect obedience is credited to our account. This is what is called the great exchange, where he takes our sin and the penalty for it, and in return, he gives us his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In him we become the righteousness of God. All of humanity gets mixed up in how to go about getting a right standing with God. We try to work for our rightness. We try to do enough good things to counterbalance all the bad things that we've done. And we've even seen this in the church, and many of you have maybe been burned in the past and have grown skeptical of the church, because when we think that sin is just an action and not a condition, we misunderstand what we are to be about. The church is not supposed to be a collection of people just trying harder to obey. Like, come to this class, learn this verse, pray this more often, and you will sin less and obey more. Sermons are not pep talks and motivational seminars to just try to get you to go out and be better and try harder. No, the church should be a collection of people living in the joy that someone has obeyed perfectly in our place and we now have a right standing with God because we are in Christ. And Romans 5 says, it is a free gift. Just receive him. And his grace abounds. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He is the true and better representative. While Adam did not trust God and disobeyed in the garden, Jesus perfectly trusted and obeyed in a garden. Hear these words from Matthew 26, 39 in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says this. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Like Tim Keller said in that video, there is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden, and his obedience is ascribed to us. Through Adam, sin entered and spread throughout all those who are in Adam. Through Jesus, 
righteousness or rightness has spread and has been credited to all those that are in Christ. Adam's sin led to condemnation for those that are in Adam. Jesus' perfect obedience and righteousness has led to justification for all those who are in Christ. Now, justification, I know that's a term we don't always use. Justification is a legal act where God declares that a sinner is righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And this is from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It says, justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Adam's rebellion and sin brought condemnation. Jesus' trust and obedience has brought justification. Now, you might be thinking, and I've thought this in the past, I mean, one sin and one mistake has led to the condemnation of all humanity. That seems, I don't know, that doesn't sit right with me at first. That seems a little extreme. That seems a little severe by God. That seems like an overreaction by God to just one sin, one act of disobedience. Now, all of humanity in Adam are condemned because of just one act of disobedience, one act of distrust. That seems like an overreaction by God. Well, you see, the severity of the consequence is proportional to the value of the one being sinned against. Let me say that again. The severity of the consequence is proportional to the value of the one being sinned against. And I've heard other pastors describe it like this, okay? Let's say you kick your dog, all right? There's not much penalty or punishment that goes along with kicking your dog. Now, you shouldn't kick your dog, okay? Don't go out and kick your dog today. Uh, and if someone with the animal rights group saw you, there might be a little bit of a penalty, okay? But don't go out and kick your dog. But if you did, there probably isn't a huge penalty there. Well, what if you went out and you kicked your neighbor, Okay, some of you maybe have thought about going out and kicking your neighbor. If so, today you can repent and confess of that, all right? But let's say you go out and kick your neighbor. Now, there's going to be a little bit bigger of a penalty for that, right? I mean, they could possibly press charges. There's going to be some strife there. It's going to be a little awkward when you're taking out you know, your mail or your trash, right? The penalty there is a little bit more severe. Well, let's say you kick the president or a king or a leader of a country. Well, there's a little bit more bigger penalty for that, right? Your punishment is going to be a little weightier than it was when you kicked your dog or kicked your neighbor if you kick now a leader of a nation. Creation rebelling against its creator is a huge offense because of the value of our creator. Committing cosmic treason against the king of the universe is a serious offense because of the greatness, goodness, and worth of our king. And Jonathan Edwards, along these same lines, said this. He said, God is a being who is infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellency and beauty. So sin against God, being a violation of infinite obligations, must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. 
So this is why it is not an overreaction by God to condemn just one sin against him. It is proportional to the value of the one being sinned against, and our val- the value of God is immeasurable, and it is infinite. That one sin, that one act of disobedience, that one act of not trusting God and taking and eating has led to death. But Jesus, the true and better Adam, in the upper room with his disciples said, this is my body, take and eat of this so that you might have life. The first Adam took and ate from a tree and it led to condemnation. The true and better Adam willingly climbed up onto a tree so that there would be no condemnation for those in Christ. Now this is why the tree in the Walker household during Christmas time is such a big deal, okay? And I'm not sure what your convictions are about Christmas trees. Uh, the idea of a Christmas tree actually has some pagan history as well as some Christian history. So I think there's some freedom in there based on what your personal convictions are as to whether you celebrate with a tree in your house. But interestingly enough, the first person to possibly put a Christmas tree in their house might have been Martin Luther, okay? I I read this story about Martin Luther that he was walking through the forest uh, in a time that was around Christmas, and he looked up and saw the stars. He saw the, the light from the stars shining through the tree branches. He thought it was so beautiful that he went home and told his kids that it reminded him that Jesus left the stars of heaven to come down to earth on Christmas, and so then he went out, chopped down the tree, and brought it inside for his kids to enjoy, okay? So it wasn't just Chevy Chase and Christmas Vacation that had that, you know, light coming down from the tree, and he knew that that was the one. It might have been an experience that Martin Luther had as well. Well, you see, we had a similar experience this year in our Walker household when we went out to go get our Christmas tree. And Dad, Dad helped Britt and I and the boys go cut down a tree. And it is a tree that barely fits into our house. And if you come and see it, it really does not even make sense how we got it inside. When we were at the tree farm and we talked to the guy that was running the tree farm, we asked, hey, can you net this for us? Like put it in the net, you know, so it kind of compacts it and whatnot. And he just laughed at us. He laughed at us. He said, I have the biggest tree netter device they make and there's no way that tree is going to fit in it. At this point, we started to get a little nervous, right, a little overwhelmed. Maybe we, maybe we weren't the best judging what size of tree we should get, but at this point, we had already chopped it down, so we just kind of had to go with it, okay? We did eventually get it home, and we did eventually get it inside our house. And it's not necessarily that tall. It's about 11 feet tall, but it's actually the girth. It's about 9 or 10 feet wide, Okay. Uh, That is what makes it impressive. I'm not exaggerating. Some of you have already seen it. You can testify to that this morning. Uh, It is already, uh, certain nicknames have already stuck with it. Some people have called it monster tree. Some people call it mega tree. Someone said it was the fattest tree they'd ever seen indoors, okay? So it's a big tree, but this is why I love making the tree a big deal in our household, okay? Because it reminds us that the first Adam took and ate from a tree and it led to condemnation. But it also reminds us that the true and better Adam willingly climbed up onto a tree so that there would be no condemnation for those in Christ. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Acts 10, 39, and 40. 
They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. And then it was Jesus, the true and better Adam, climbing up on the tree that has made possible once again our access to the tree of life. Because we read in Revelation twenty-two fourteen, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. So if you want your tree to be a true and better Christmas tree this season, it doesn't have to be a monster tree, it doesn't have to be a mega tree, but whatever shape or size it is, it can remind you of the gospel, that through one man's disobedience, he took and ate from a tree, and it has led to condemnation and death. But Jesus Christ climbed up onto the tree in our place, and he has now given us the right to the tree of life in eternal paradise with him. Now, let me explain why I like a big tree, okay, why, I, why we went so big with the tree. Our tree is so large that you cannot do anything in the house, in the downstairs area, without thinking about it or at least acknowledging its presence. It literally affects everything we do in that downstairs area. When people come into our house, it is so obvious that the tree is such a huge part of that household that they can't help but want to ask questions and talk about it. You see, in the same way, I want the gospel to loom so large in our home that everything we say or do is with the gospel in mind. I want the gospel to affect everything my household does. When people enter our home, I want it to be so obvious that we celebrate and worship Jesus there that they can't help but ask us questions and want to talk to us about it. So our tree is a mega tree because I need to be reminded of a mega gospel, all right? And I need to be reminded of the true and better Adam. In Adam... We lost God's presence. In Jesus, we have won back what was lost in the garden, and we can once again dwell in his presence. In Adam, sin entered into the world and has spread to all. In Jesus, righteousness was obtained and has been spread over all those who are in him. In Adam, physical and spiritual death infected all of humanity. In Jesus, death has been put to death because he came that we might have life. Adam failed to trust God in a garden. Jesus perfectly trusted God in the garden, and his obedience is credited to us. Adam was conquered by sin. Jesus perfectly and infinitely conquered sin once and for all. Adam broke the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. In Adam, we thought God was holding out on us. In Jesus, we realize he has given us all things, and he has given us the richest treasure in the universe. He has given us himself. Church, may we praise God that what was lost in the garden was won back by Jesus. Let's pray. God, we we do want to celebrate and enjoy what you have accomplished, God. 
You did not leave us. You did not disown us. You did not forget us, God, but you loved us. And so you entered into your story, God, to save us, to redeem us, to accomplish what we could not have accomplished on our own. So God, may we celebrate that we are in Christ. And God, if there is anyone in here or listening to this that is still in Adam, I ask that you would reveal that to them, God. That they would see that their, their sin is not just, not just the actions and the bad things that they've done, but Lord, it is ultimately a condition of their heart and that they need to be born again, that they need new hearts. And all they need, God, is to receive you. It's a free gift, Lord. And I ask that your grace would abound more and more, that many more would receive you, and that those that have received you might enjoy you even more, God. Make much of yourself, Lord. And may your word be what lasts from this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.